Romans chapter 15. As you know, we have been, been coming through the book of Romans, and I don't know for where our church is at right now, a better book for us to go through. Yet at the same time, I'm so excited that when we finish the book of Romans, we start the book of 2 Corinthians. That's where we're really going to put the meat to ministry and really understand some of the things. And, and all of this is in God's timing. But you know what? Before you can minister to people, you have to learn to be able to deal with people and get along with people. And I've showed you that Romans chapter 14 and 15 are the two greatest chapters in the Bible that really shows us that, that aspect. And last week we, start, we, we, we started, came through the verse that probably is the greatest single verse in the Bible that uh, what we should be as Christians. You know, it's amazing to me, and some of you older folks probably understand what I'm about to say. It's amazing to me how far we get off track without really understanding and knowing it. Somebody asked me a question a couple of weeks ago about the nation of Israel. And, you know, it, it, the Jews today as a nation and the Jews today as people that you meet and go to synagogues on Sunday or Saturday and do their whole deal and they cl- classify themselves to be Jews, the average person does not understand because they don't understand the Bible how absolutely unrecognizable the nation of Israel is today from what God intended it to be in the Bible. Even in Jesus' time, if you study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John very carefully, you find that they, they, had, they have reinvented themselves. You know, when we come through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you, don't, uh, you, you find the Pharisees, the scribe, uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees. But you go back to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, and there's no, there's no Pharisees or Sadducees back there. How did this group become the religious constituency that's leading Israel when you don't even find them in the Bible when Israel was where they were needing to be with God? Of course, the answer to that is, is because that they invented them. Even in Christ's day, the nation of Israel was so far away from God that it was almost unrecognizable to what God intended it to be in the Old Testament. The Bible, the Jews follow is an Old Testament. It's called the Torah. It would be the first five books of the Bible. Uh, the Bible's the Old Testament Jewish Bible is broken down into the law, the writings, and the prophets. And that's what they had in the Old Testament. But now if you'd go into a synagogue today, you'd find the Midrash, you'd find the Talmud, you'd tell the Meshua. All of these are books that they have written to get around the Bible that God has given them. My point is simply this. The average, and you don't know this if you don't understand history in the Bible. The average Jew today uh, that is an Orthodox believing Jew, no matter where you go, they are so far away from what God intended them to be that if you put the Bible characteristic of what they are and looked at what they are today, they're, they're not even close. And yet I look at that and I think to myself that churches are the same way today. The farther we get away from the source, which is Antioch in the book of Acts, of our truth, and the closer we get to the second coming of Christ, the more apostasy sets in and the more things change. I teach a lot of things on Bible study that, that uh, uh, the average person listens to, and they, they scratch their head and they say, wow, I wonder where he got that. We believe the King James Bible is the absolute perfect word of God without any apology, and we stand on that and preach that and teach that. And that's strange to a lot of people. And a lot of people say, why do you do that? Or why, what's the difference? Or what's the big deal? And see, the, the, the bottom line is that, that what we teach here as a church, 200 years ago, 180 years ago, 150 years ago, was what everybody in Bible Christianity believed. We haven't changed. It's the churches have changed in what they believe that the churches today, much like the nation of Israel, does not even resemble itself. I, I marvel, and I've told you this before, we have in Christianity today. Did you ever ask yourself this question? We have in Bible Christianity today megachurches. We have the Internet. We have telecommunications. Why, there's a little girl that just tried to sail around the world at 16 years old that was out there 2,000 miles from any landmass in any direction, sailing a 16-year-old girl in a 40-foot boat out there by herself. And uh, you know what? She had trouble. A big wave come over and knocked her mask off, and she was stranded and couldn't go anywhere. What did she do? She just reached over and pushed her little GPS signal button, and immediately somebody watching a board someplace saw this light flashing and knew she was in trouble. She had a satellite phone. Here she is. No pay phones in the, in the ocean. 
<laughs> oh, I'm sure, Zach, you think there are, don't you, huh? Yeah, yeah, right. There's no, there's no pay phones in the Indian Ocean. She had a telephone that could bounce off a satellite and make a call anywhere in the world. Now, pizza delivery would be a little tough, but it would be a good prank to play on people, you know. Instead of giving them your address, give them your longitude and latitude and see if they can find you. My point is this. What, what a marvel of technology that is. They saved her. I was worried about her. I was worried about her before I know she was in trouble. A 16-year-old on, on the, you know, around the world, in the, I mean, that's tough. I mean, uh, I, I'm so afraid of sharks, I won't even take a bath. I take a shower because I saw Jaws when I was a kid. But anyway, I got incredible. But the technology we have today is incredible. They, they rescued her two days later, all because she had the system to get there. You know, you can have laser printing. We can send pictures across anywhere. We can print stuff. We can get stuff done. It's incredible what we as Christians and the church have the ability to do today with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But do you know something? And this always amazed me. It, It bothers me, but it amazes me. With all of that technology that we have today, we are getting less done in churches than they did in the book of Acts when they didn't have any of those things. You ever stop and ponder why that is? Because all of that technology, ladies and gentlemen, is no replacement for the Holy Spirit of God in your life. Churches have come a long way from what they once were. And obviously, if that's true, then Christianity and Christians have come a long way. I say it all the time that I feel sorry for people that, uh, you know, grow up in this amalgamated mess called Christianity today. I really do. Uh, uh, Joe Christensen asked a question uh, the couple of Thursday nights ago out of John chapter 5 about the pool at Bethesda where the man that was, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, it was crippled and he was laying there waiting for the moving of the waters. And I walked you through that and I showed you uh, how that was a picture of the nation of Israel uh, in their calamity at that time. But then I also told you, I think I told you, that that's a great message picturing of where the church is at today. Because here's a man who was, who was sitting around this pool. Pool was a picture of the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God. And yet the Bible says that this man is, uh, he's, uh, he's impotent. That means that he has no power. He's blind. That means that he's spiritually blind. The Bible says that he's halt. That means he has no walk with God. And the Bible says that he's withered. That means he has no work for God. And that is a picture of the church today. We're sitting around the Bible waiting for God to do something, but nothing is getting done. I remember when my kids were just little, somebody had brought them uh, kind of like you sat on the floor, and it was like a car console. It had a steering wheel on it, it had a key on it, and it had a horn on it, and it had windshield wiper washers. And what you did is you sat on the floor, and it went across your legs like you were driving. And I remember they were, they both had one, and I mean, they were ramming the gears and honking the horn and moving the windshield wipers and, and, and steering the wheel. And I walked through there one day getting ready for church, and I looked down and watched them just going at it. And I thought to myself, you know what? That is like so many churches I know. There's a lot of action and there's a lot of movement, but nothing's hooked up. And that's true of Christians today. We have come so far short. Christians today, they don't understand. They look like the world, they dress like the world, they talk like the world, they listen to the world's music. They, they're a worldly version of what the world thinks Christianity should be. And they don't understand the meaning of the word sanctification. That once you get saved, that you're no longer to look like the world. You're no longer to act like the world. You don't listen to the things of the world. You don't do the things of the world. And what we've done is the same thing that Israel did it's the same thing the churches have done. We've amalgamated, tried to take God and the Bible and the world and put it all in one big, nice, neat package. And yet, in spite of all that, the Bible's still true. In Amos chapter 3, where it says, how can two walk together except they be agreed? And we live in Christianity in most of our lives in an illusion world. This church is, is designed for one real aspect, really, and that is to be a reality check for all of us. Romans chapter 14 and 15 is really that reality check. Because Romans chapter 14 and 15 brings us back to what it means in the Bible when the Bible makes the statement for us to be Christ-like. 
And we have lost that term today, and we do not understand it. What does it mean in the Bible to be Christ-like? And of course, we all have our own definitions of that. But today, for the last week, as we come through here, we're going to look uh, at that. We looked at a great passage in Romans 15.1, which is the great verse. Ye that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. And uh, you hear me talk a lot about definitive verses. This is what I've learned from the Bible over the years. And I've learned over the years that the Bible is a book that God has a design in how it goes together. And God has built every teaching that he has around a single verse that basically defines that teaching. I call them definitive passages or definitive verses. Thursday night, Sunday morning, many, many times, almost in everything that we do, you, I give you a definitive verse. So Jenny asked the question Thursday night, what is the finish, definitive verse on sin? And, you know, and, and, and it's important to know those. And, but verse 15.1, or I guess I should say chapter 14 and 15, is really the definitive passages on us as Christians. There's no question. When you come through Romans chapter 14 and 15, you are faced with one of two things. Either you are or you are not. It takes away the smoking mirrors of what we think it means to be Christ-like. Ladies and gentlemen, to be Christ-like simply means, and this is so simple, I feel even stupid saying it. Being Christ-like simply means that you're like Christ. But we like to take those things and mask them in every other thing that we do so we can do it. I've told you many, 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 many times, the ministry is people. Ministry is you one-on-one with somebody else, helping them, getting them through the crisis uh, they're at in their life when they, uh, when they can't get through it themselves. You'll remember we built this around the study of a journey of a man's life, Abraham, the friend of God, and I showed you. And we built it on the great verse in Romans chapter 14, verse 23, that simply said, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And I showed you how that your job and my job is to get to that place where we can trust God for everything in our lives. And at that point, when you amass that, then you have the ability to help somebody. Now, the breakdown of this chapter and in July, we're going to take the whole month of July, and it'll probably spill over into August, I think. But so many of you are new Christians, and you all got your wide margin Bibles, and you're all taking notes. But I want to show you basically how uh, that you want to put your notes in your Bible. The Bible breaks itself down as far as putting notes in, in four concepts. And I want to walk you through those. I don't know that we'll get through it in four weeks, but we're going to start it in July. And I want to show you a practical way. I'm going to show you what I did. It may not entirely work for you, but the concept is the same. And I'm going to show you how to do it, and I'm going to give you some examples. But, you know, here's a great example. This great chapter here, this great chapter of chapter 15, breaks itself down into seven great defining concepts of what your life and my life should be. And if you have a Bible and you have Romans chapter 15 and you open it up, you ought to have this chapter broken down in these seven concepts because this whole chapter basically wraps itself around what a Christian ought to be and gives you the seven concepts. Three of them we've already looked at. We looked at verse 1 last time where it says, He that bears the, we're to bear the infirmities of weaker Christians. We looked at the second one last week that was found in verse 2 that we're to please people. Now, that doesn't mean that you're a man-pleaser or what Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. He says, I don't please any man. He's not talking about in this sense. He's talking about by not preaching popular things. He'll preach what the Word of God says. This is a different concept here. This is as you and me as a Christian. Uh, if you're in this church and you're a Christian and I'm a Christian, my job is to not bring in you any stress into your life but help you, please you in the sense of helping you grow. We also saw in verse 2 and talked about the fact, this would be the third thing, that he edifies other Christians. The fourth thing found in verse 7, this is what we're going to talk about today, is that he receives other people to the glory of God. The fifth thing found in verse 14 is he admonishes other people. The sixth thing in verse 27 is he, that he ministers to other people. And the last thing, the seventh one found in verse 36, is he prays for other people. It's these seven principles that are what we as Christians are supposed to be. And uh, Bible Christianity uh, has come a long way from where it is. 
I think the book of Colossians has always been one of my favorite books. I don't know if you know this or not, but when John writes the, the book of Revelation, you know that he writes the seven churches? When Paul writes his epistles to the churches, you realize that he also writes the seven churches? Do you know on a upper level of Bible study, the seven churches that Paul writes to match up to the seven churches that John writes to? And the church that John writes to last is the church that you and I are part of, and that is the Laodicean church. And the book that Paul writes to in his, in his writings that matches up to Laodicea would be the church, the church at Colossians. We can know it as Colossians. Colossians was just about 12 miles south of Laodicea. And uh, the proximity of that is quite incredible because in the book of Colossians, we really find, remember I talked about a minute ago how that Christians are so far from what God wanted them to be? They've lost the definition. They fancy themselves uh, as something even when they're not. And they're really out of, out of whack with it. That's what the book of Colossians deals with. You know what chapter one, you know you want to outline the book of Colossians, here it comes, this is easy. Put it at the top of your book of Colossians, Colossians pictures of Laodicean church, and here's the outline. Chapter one, you know what he does in chapter one? You got to read it tonight. He redefines who Christ is in chapter one. You know why? Because that's the number one problem we have. We have lost who Christ is. So he goes through and he redefines in chapter one uh, who Christ is. You know what he does in chapter two? He shows you what the real problem is in Christianity today. You know what the problem is in Christianity today and what has destroyed Christianity? And, you know, the only thing men never learn from history is the fact that men never learn anything from history. It's found in verse 8. It's the fact that we have spoiled Christianity through philosophy. Philosophy and Christianity are two opposite ends of the spectrum. And what happened in the early church, for those of you that were on ch in church history, what happened? The manuscripts came out of Antioch. The whole thing put into, went into play. And what took place? What happened? The Christian philosophers came in, Origen and the boys, down in Alexandria, Egypt. And what did they do? They took the pagan philosophies and tried to put them into Bible Christianity, and it destroyed Christianity. And we're finding today that that's exactly what is happening today. People are trying to take philosophy, bridge it into Christianity, and uh, it can't ever happen. He tells us in verse 8 that the church was spoiled through philosophy, vain deceit, tradition of men, that's what philosophy is, the rudiments of the world, that's what philosophy is, and then he says, and not after Christ. So we see in the book of Colossians the problem that we have. And in chapter 3 and chapter 4, you know what he does in those great chapters? Well, chapter 1, he tells us what the what the, uh, the fact that we, we, we lost who Christ is. Chapter 2, he tells us what the problem is, philosophy. And in chapter 3 and 4, he tells us how that you and I are to uh, go against those things and what our job is and how we to deal with it uh, in those particular times, my response to it. And uh, because of that, we have learned uh, and lost the definition of a lot of things. We know the term saved, but we don't know what it really means. We know the term born again, but we couldn't explain the process if our life depended on it. We certainly have lost sight of the word sanctified, but we think that we can get saved and listen to the world's music and do whatever the world does and, and still, you know, uh, be a viable witness for Christ. And what a, what, a, what a delusion that is. And, of course, we have also lost the definition of the term Christ-like. And this is what Romans chapter 15 really deals with. Now, I'm going to read today. Yes, that was my introduction. Romans chapter 15, verses 5 through 12. Follow along with me, if you would, please. Now, the God of patience and consolation grants you to be like-minded one toward another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify God even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, because of what I just said, receive ye one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy 
as it is written, For this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles, and sing unto thy name. And again he saith, Rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. Verse 12, And again Isaiah saith, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, and in him shall the Gentiles trust. Now, Father, we do thank you and praise you today, and help us to lay this out. Lord, there's good people in this church. There really are. You don't bring us very many people who don't have the ability to really be everything that you want them to be. And Lord, I pray for them today. I pray that you'll help them in the world that we live in, that you'll help them get the right definitions. I'm always amazed. And Lord, I know as we start Saturday and we, we're going to have to really get crusty with some things. And we're really going to have to speak very frankly and, and get some definitions laid out that the leaders and the people who are the future leaders of this church get back to some kind of common ground of ministry to get out of this illusion of what Christianity has become today and what Christians have become. And Lord, help us today as we we look at this and we try to build a work here that is for your honor and glory. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for his sake we ask it. Amen. Now this passage, we see a number of things. And um, again, it's a defining passage. And it's a defining passage on our uh, uh, and really our reality check of where we're at and what we're trying to do in concept of being Christ-like. Now, the first thing, look at verse 5. I'm just kind of move through these so I can spend some time on the key things here. Verse 5, now the God of patience and consolation. Now, those are two great qualities that we should have as Christians in dealing with people. Obviously, the first one is patience. It takes patience to work with people. And uh, patience is something that is required if you're ever going to get to the place where you help people. Now, when I say patience, this again is misdefined. Most of you take that means that you don't ever get in anybody's face about anything or deal with anything, but you just are patient. That's not what I'm talking about. I look at the young people today. I was a youth pastor back in 1976 up to about 1986 someplace in there. And uh, many of you uh, were, in my, were in my youth group back then. Not many of you, but a few of you. Steve Brackeen was 12 years old when I first met him. Michelle, how old were you, Michelle? What were you? You were about one and a half or something like that. Huh? You were a counselor in my youth department back then. Remember the first day I showed up and all the kids thought they died and went to hell? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> they did. <laughs> And, uh, you know, and it's a thing where uh, I look at the youth today, and I think to myself, my, 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 I, I, I would never make it as a youth pastor today, because I would, I, would, I would kill the kids, you see. <laughs> see, back in my day, when somebody, we went to a camp one time with uh, another church here in town, and uh, I had some real bozos that were problems. And uh, they disres- four or five of them thought they were real smart, real cute. And they disrespected the other pastor. And, uh, and I don't remember, I don't know if uh, Steve was there. I don't know if he remembered. You're probably too young yet. Some of you, I don't know if anybody else was there. But I, I, had, I, I didn't take, I didn't put up with it. And we were down in a place outside of uh, Springfield at a camp. And uh, it had been raining, and it was a dirt, dusty old place, you know. And I, I made them, on their face, on their belly, crawl down that road through every mud puddle, through every piece of mud and dirt. Oh, I know, I know, I can see it right now. I'm going to be sued this afternoon by, by the child. You know what? And I'll tell you, and, and, I, and I made them crawl down and, and then crawl back and then apologize to this guy for the disrespect. See, that was the old days. Can't do that today. I mean, you do that today, and, and, you know, and people say, well, I don't think that's right. Well, you know, I don't know what to tell you. I guess uh, you, sh- you sit there and try to teach somebody, and, and uh, that, you know what, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the bottom line is, if their parents would have done what's right, we never would have had the situation where they were disrespectful anyhow. And I feel bad about having the kids crawl down. If I'd have had my way, I'd have the parents crawl down. But they were all deacons in the church back then. You know what really got me in trouble? 
first camp, well, a number of things got me in trouble, but <laughs> the first camp we ever had was a real camp. I had Mel Shabaka come in. Oh, yeah, he tore the paint off the walls. That was the worst camp I ever had in my life. That was the night, and we literally joke about this, that all the demons got cast out of the camp. I had a 14-year-old, you're laughing, I had a 14, 13-year-old kid that was demon-possessed that night that, that, that I had to deal with in the middle of the night out in a dark place, and he picked me up and threw me across the room. Oh, I could tell you some horror. It was a bad camp. Bad, it was a good camp. But the problem started when we got back to camp. You know why? Because we had a great camp, I had like 27 kids saved out of about 80 kids there. And every kid that got saved was on fire for God and wanted to go home and live for God and get baptized. And the problem was when they got home and told their mom and dads who were deacons, who were finance committee members, whatever those are, who were people who were high up muckety-mucks in the church that their kids really were not saved, who do you think they blamed for it? They did not care that their kids now were saved and on their way to heaven. They cared about the fact that they now were, that they were exposed, that they hadn't done what's right. And what, what would that be like for you to be a deacon in a church, sitting in a high ark someplace where you are a Sunday school teacher or some high muckety-muck, and you just find out that your kid was never saved? I mean, everybody else was going to heaven, but your kid was going to hell. Now, who do they blame for that? God? No, they blame ye for it. But that's just what it is. And it's a thing, I wouldn't trade, I wouldn't be in that situation today for anything in the world, simply because of the fact that, uh, you know, it's, it's a terrible thing. And uh, parents let their kids do stuff today that I, I, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even adopt. I was, I was at somebody's place the other day, and we was talking about, a, talking to a kid that is a, a, a Brian Robbins up in Monmouth, and I was talking to him on the phone, and he was talking about how that in his Bible study, you know, he tried to have a Bible study, and he said, you know what, I can't get anything done. He says, you know what, uh, the, the kids are texting on their phones while I'm trying to teach, and they're, they're talking back and forth. And I, and I said, he, and he says, he said, it's tough. I said, Brian, whose fault is that? I said, if you don't know how to command discipline in your own youth group, then you better get somebody else in there that can. You know what I do? I collect every cell phone they had. I say, let's see your cell phones, folks. Put them on the table. And I collect them all, and I say, you can have them when you go back. I mean, it, it, either you're going to run it or they're going to run it. But that's the way I was raised, you see. And I know I said it many, many times. I'm a dinosaur in, 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 um, in, New, in Central Park in New York City. I mean, that's just where it's at. But I'm telling you, we've come to the place where you've got to have patience in the ministry. But that doesn't mean you let people do whatever they want to do. I'm patient with people, but I give them a standard, a biblical standard they got to go by. And when they break it a thousand times, I'm still patient. But the bottom line is simply this. You cannot, it doesn't mean you just have patience without any kind of structure. And a lot of people today in ministry are afraid to put structure to it. because They don't want to make people mad. Hey, that's my spiritual gift, man. I have no problem with it. The ministry, you're not going to please everybody all the time. And the moment you try to think you can, you're in trouble. And then the second thing here, and it's another great quality, it says, it says a consolation. Now, the God of patience and consolation. You know what that means? We think it means, and it does, to console people. I'm consoling you. I'm helping you. I'm, cons- no, I'm consoling you. I'm helping you, see? But the word consolation carries more than that meaning with it. What happens when you get, out of, you get out of control with your finances and you listen to the radio as you're driving down the street and you find quickie uh, uh, loan office who is going to help you do what with all your bills? Consolidate. So you owe $60,000 to 150 people. And so you go owe $60,000 to one person, see? And he pays off all your bills and you can work it that way. That's called Consolidation. Consolation is the form of that word, and it means more than just comforting somebody. It means to give form to something. In other words, the two greatest aspects of ministry is patience with the right kind of structure, but also consolation, helping you form yourself into something. My job is to help you conform yourself to the image of Christ, firm you up to be Christ-like. That's the job. That's not only my job, that's your job. And uh, that's, the, that's the whole concept. And that's the first two qualities that he talks about God that he has that we need to have. Then verse 5 also it says, uh, we're told to be like-minded. 
It says, now the God of patience and consolation grants you to be like-minded one toward another according to Jesus Christ. Then the like-mindedness here isn't just that you and I have to agree on the same thing. It's you and I agree on the same thing based on what the Word of God says, that our mind is, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, and we're like-minded. And I've, I've found that, uh, you, know, uh, you know, this is, and this is so true. You know, we saw this in chapter 14. We may disagree on minor issues. That's immaterial. But on the doctrinal issues, we're solid on and we have the same mind. And uh, churches have knocked down drag outs and splits over the stupidest stuff. I've seen churches get in fight and, and split over the color of the choir robes. I've seen them decide whether they wanted to have padded pews on the back or not. And they get fighted over it. I believe it or not, I had one guy who I knew that left the church one time, and I asked him, what was the deal? And he says, you know what, they were spending too much money. And I said, well, what were they spending money on? For one thing, he said, they were spending a lot of money on the toilet paper. <laughs> I said, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> I mean, th- there are things that you fight over. I mean, at the same time, you know, they'll fight over stupid stuff like that, but they'll allow the NIV to come into church, and nobody says a peep. But that's traditionally churches. I'm going to teach you guys some things on these Saturdays and you gals. We're going, to, we're going to go to work. Now look at verse 6. That you be, uh, may be uh, made with, with one mind. Oh, and I love this. And one mouth. Glorify God. You see, what you have in your head has to come out of your mouth. The problem with Christians, they don't have anything in their head, so everything goofy comes out of their mouth. <laughs> now let me tell you one of the most embarrassing times I ever had. Now, I'm not a good dresser. I mean, I you find that funny. You're not so hot yourself. I don't, I don't need this at 60, guys. I just really don't. But I'm not. I, I, I have a hard time staying neat. I envy some of you guys. I had one guy in my ministry one time, and I don't care what this guy did, where he was. He always looked like a million dollars. I mean, he was tall. He was good looking. I mean, uh, I was just good looking. I wasn't tall, you know. And, and wherever you wherever you saw this guy, wherever you saw this guy, he looked like he just stepped out of a parade. Whenever you saw me, I looked like the parade just stepped all over me. I mean, I you know what? And that's just the way I am. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I'm not a good dresser. I, I don't dress for style. I, I don't like clothes that have. You know, uh, I mean, some of you guys, you know, you got an AF on it. And that's fine. But I don't like wear stuff that, that everybody else wears, see? I mean, I just, I, I just me. I just me. I, only not, I not only march to a different drum, I try to reinvent the drum. I mean, I just, that's just where I'm at, see? I just, that's me. And I just never come to the point where I could ever, you know, uh, and one time, I, I, this, was the, this was the most embarrassing time of my life. But it was a great example because it sits where I'm at here. Somebody said, we're having a deal and you got to have a dark suit. Well, I'm not going to go buy a dark suit. Because in my mind, I have a very dark blazer, almost black, and I have a very dark black pair of pants. And so I put it on and it looked wonderful. And I, I had it on and I looked absolutely great. The moment I left the house... And walked out into the light. It was two different shades of dark blue. Now, how does that happen? Dark blue is dark blue. My point is this. It looked fine when I was in the house under the fake lights. But when I went outside into the real light, it exposed that they did not match. That was the most embarrassing thing in my life. But you know what? I thought about that many, many times in light of this one mouth, one mind. You see, in your own little world, what you say in your mouth and your mind matches up till you get into the light of the Word of God, then it shows you that it doesn't match. See how the thing works? I got that illustration in the shower this morning. I just want you to write that down someplace. <laughs> I needed a good illustration, and I got that in the shower. And it's a great concept. The Word of God forms your mind from which it forms the words you speak. 
I talked to you a couple of weeks ago. I talked about what the Bible does, the, the, the important thing, how we build a sound mind, which builds sound doctrine, which builds sound speech, which builds sound word, which in the end of the day builds sound faith. And that's exactly what uh, he's talking about here. Look at verse 7, and here's where we're going to be today. <clears throat> Wherefore, receive ye one another, as Christ also received us, to the glory of God. Now, the first thing I want you to see there, and this is very important, it doesn't look like much, but there's a lot to it. It simply says that the reason why God received us was for his honor and glory. God didn't save you for your honor and glory. He saved you for his honor and glory. He didn't take you in so you could do whatever you wanted to do. He took you in so you could do for him what he wanted you to do for him. And he received you for a purpose. And that purpose was for his honor and glory. And you'll remember that last time we talked in 14.1, that was the whole essence there, that we, we are to receive a weaker brother. Now, I, I want to say it again. I, I know of no two other chapters that lay us bare and define us for what we really are in light of what we pretend or we think we are as Christians better than these two chapters. And they're sleeper chapters. They really are. I mean, there are some chapters that you just want to stay away from in the Bible because you know when you read it, it ain't going to come out in your favor. But this isn't two of them. This looks like it's a very easy chapter just to start walking through. And then, boy, you get in the middle of it, you realize you're in a, you're in a minefield. I told you last week, and boy, it's a great truth, how unchristian some Christians are in their Christianity. And uh, there's a confusing concept on receiving people. And I need to touch this too because I, over there in 1 John chapter uh, 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 10 and 11, it says, If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him God's speed. Verse 11 says, For if you do, basically you're a partaker of his evil deeds. Now, I've had people take that verse. Just, I just need to cover all the bases here because maybe there's somebody here that end of this persuasion. I've had people tell me that when Jehovah Witnesses come to their door, that they never let him in the house. Or Mormons come to the door and never let him in the house. Well, whether you let him in your house or not is your deal. I mean, the bottom line is, but what they do is they use this verse to prove that. And they say that because they're preaching, obviously, a terrible bad doctrine, if you receive them into your house, you're also, you know, you're also receiving part of their iniquity or partakers of their evil deeds or whatever. Let me say this to you. That's not what the word receive means in the Bible. It's not talking about having somebody come into your house. When you come over to my home, or, and I feel this when I come over to your home, basically my home is yours. I mean, um, you know, you can, you can, if you want something to drink, you're fine. If you're hungry, we'll feed you. You know, my home is yours. Pick up the mortgage payment on the way out and take care of it this month, you know. But, but receiving is more than just come on in. Receiving is a Christian attitude that says what I got is yours. Give you the shirt off my back, so to speak. <laughs> it, it's, it, it, it's what's mine is yours. And, you know, that's a private joke between me and Steve. He liked the yellow shirt that I went out and I wore a couple of Sundays ago. And he said, I really like that. Where'd you get it? And I've had it for a year. I've only worn it. This is the first time I wore it. So I, I had it washed and I brought it and I gave it to him today. But he went out and bought one. So now he's got two of them. So what are you going to do? Yeah. Oh, he got it. All right. <clears throat> anyway. But it means when you receive somebody as a Christian, it means that we're family. We're family. You don't have to be, if you're thirsty at my house, you don't have to say, hey, Bob, can I have a drink? You know, you, you, if mine is yours. I mean, it's a, that's that atmosphere. And that's not what they're talking about by just having a Jehovah Witness knock on your door and says, can I talk to you a minute? And you say, yeah, come on in. And he sits down there for 20 minutes and you say, no, thank you. And he leaves. That's not the same concept. You got to understand that. And people get confused sometimes. But it's the concept of openly, honestly, based on our relationship with God, receiving others. You know, and this is such a true statement. You know that when most of us came to God, we were in pretty sorry shape. I know I was. Many of you, when you came to this church the first time, you know, and, and uh, you weren't anywhere near where you're at now, were you? I had a lady call me this week just as a, a testimony, a uh, sweet gal, one of my best buddies in the whole wide world, talked to me and basically called me up to tell me how that a couple of women in this church 
have really, really, really ministered to her, and really, really, she's impressed with what they've done and how much they had done that. And I didn't say anything to her. I just took it and thanked her for it. But I thought to myself afterwards, boy, you know what? When those ladies came into this church, they weren't that way. God does some tremendous things, you see. And many of when you come into this church, you, I mean, you're not where you're at now. Many of you, your life was a complete wreck. You had no Bible. You had no power. You had no purpose. You had no perspective. You had no passion. Not for anything of God, anyhow. You had no relationship with God. Many of you have been in bad marriages or at least bad relationships. Many of you were in moral relationships. Some of you were stuck to the world so thick. Some of you had been rebellious to your parents growing up, and you found out that, you know, that uh, that rebellion didn't stop with your parents. You took that rebellion right out in everything that was an authority structure around you. And Dr. Phil says, how did that work for you? You're in a mess with that. Some of you were in drugs. Some of you were drinking. Some of you, you, you know, I mean, you were just a mess. I mean, that's where we were. And, uh, you know, some of you had defrauded other people. Some of you were in trouble with the IRS. Some of you, you know, had defrauded on your bank loans. Some of you had cheated other people out of money. I mean, it was, you know, I mean, it was, a, it was, and I remember, I remember. I remember how, I remember the sorrow in so many people's eyes. I remember the anguish and the hurt of a life that did those kind of things. And the world, somebody said one time, and it's a true statement, the, you know, the world never leaves a man any better than it finds him. And boy, that is so true. Now, let me ask you a question. What happened? What happened when you came to this church? What happened when you came into my office and, and, and cried out in your heart and laid out all the sorrows of your problems? What happened when you, when you, you started coming to Thursday night Bible study and, and you come over and you sat down and talked with me and we put a plan together for you? What happened? What happened when you wanted to make a new life that you knew you had blown it and you made some mistakes and you lost your marriage or you lost this or you lost that? And, and what happened? What happened when you wanted to turn it around and make your life finally count because you had learned through the process of mistakes that that was a dead-end street? I'll tell you what happened. You know what happened? We received you, no questions asked. You didn't have a form you had to fill out. If you committed 10 terrible sins, you didn't go into one category and sit on one side. That would be this side over here. And, and if you only committed eight or nine, you went here. And if you committed five or six over here, and you guys were all perfect. Not, but anyway. <laughs> I had a story one time. A guy died and went to heaven. And he's walking through with St. Peter, you know, and he's looking all around, and, and, and he's looking at everything, and he... He sees a bunch of people over here, a big room filled out with thousands of people, and they're all eating chicken dinners. And he says to St. Peter, he says, who are these people? And he says, oh, these are all the Methodists. Because Methodists always have chicken dinners. Walks into this other great big room, and there's five million people playing bingo. He says, who are these? And he says, these are all the Catholics. Walks into this other big room, and it's filled with people, and there's signs all around it said, no talking, quiet. No speaking, no noise, no nothing. And he says, who are these people? And he says, well, these are the Baptists. He says, how come you have all those signs around? He says, because they think they're the only ones up here. <laughs> and you came to this church, I'll tell you what happened. We received you, no questions asked. On what basis? Because that's what God had done with each of us. That's exactly what God has done with each of us. I thank God that God doesn't treat me or doesn't treat us like some of God's people treat other Christians. I don't care. I mean, uh, that's, that's the basis is, you say, well, they don't deserve it. Nobody deserves it. If we got grace, if we got all what we deserve, we'd all be screaming in hell this morning. But you know what? When you were unlovable, God loved me. When we were despicable, God cleaned us up. And uh, it's just one of those things. God's people after salvation. I mean, I'm, I'm just being honest. We're going to talk about these things, and these are things you're gonna, you need to understand. Romans chapter 14 and 15, are they're great definitive chapters because the, there ain't nowhere to hide in here. God's people after salvation, they tend to drift away and to forget. One of my favorite psalms, that I, I call it a psalm of remembrance. There's several psalms in the Bible that, to me, are what I call psalms of remembrance. You know, that's one of the three infirmities that we have, not re forgetting and not remembering. 
But Psalms chapter 40, verses 1 and 2, is a psalm that every Christian ought to have memorized. It simply says this, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings. And he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God, and many shall see it in fear and trust in the Lord. You know what? We forget. We forget the day that we were stuck in that miry pit. It says miry clay. You ever been in miry clay? Miry clay sucks you down. You try to walk through it. it your shoes stay there. Your feet come out. It's impossible to get through. That's what the world and its sin had done to you and me. The miry clay. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit. That's the pit of the life of sin that you and I were in before God saved you. And many of you fell back into after you got saved. And God looked at you down in there and God saw you down in there. And what did he do? He comes down through there and he says, he brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock. And what else did he do? He established my going. And if that wasn't enough, you know what he did then? He put a new song in your heart. Even praise unto our God that many shall see it in fear and trust in the Lord. You know what he did? He did what he shouldn't have done. He did what we won't do sometimes. He received us. He received us. Ever notice how unchristians, some Christians become in their Christianity? And I understand it. God's people, after they're saved, they forget. They forget. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 says, it says, Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we, here it comes, for we ourselves were also sometimes foolish. Oh, yes, we were. We were real foolish sometimes. We ourselves were also sometimes foolish, disobedient, yes we were, deceiving, absolutely, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, you bet we did, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another, that's where we all were, and he says we ourselves were also sometimes these things, but look at verse 4, listen to verse 4. But after that, the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared. Now, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, God's people, after they get saved, they become, when they forget, and they start to drift away, and they start to get self-righteous, sanctimonious, judgmental, unforgiving, prideful, bitter spirit, no mercy. Oh, they hold a set of rules for everybody else and then another set of rules for themselves. They want God's forgiveness. They can screw up their life. They can do this and they run to God. Let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. The scribes, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees didn't have much on God's people today. Now, how does all that happen? It's simple. We forget. We forget how filthy and how a stench we were in the nostrils of God. And that God received us in spite of that. Verse 7 says, for his honor and glory. He cleaned us up, set our feet upon a rock and established our going. He put a new song in our mouth and praise unto our God and many shall see. And what we do is we forget. And what happens when we forget? What we know in our head doesn't come out of our mouth. The suit doesn't match. Listen. In my lifetime, and I'm not talking about anybody here, but in my lifetime in Christianity, I've learned some things. And I'm going to show you, boys and girls, some of those things on, when we start this next thing. And boy, it's going to be frank. So if you're, if you're somebody who is, who is fragile, don't show up. But some of the most wicked, self-righteous, unmerciful people I have ever met in my life are saved, born again, blood washed, as sure as I'm standing here, there's no doubt in my mind, 
children of God who simply forgot how rotten they are and how rotten they were when God found them. What arrogance. What an arrogant attitude that God's willing to forgive give you, but he's not willing to forgive somebody else. What arrogance to come to the point where we can, we can say that God, well, all the things that we did in our life. I mean, Christians avoiding other Christians because they don't meet their standards. Let me tell you something. The first time God laid eyeballs on you, we didn't look too hot either. But you know what he did? He received us. This verse, this, these chapters are rough, man. We receive other, others clear and simple. When they want to do what's right and they want to get their life turned around and get saved or whatever, God's receiving us as a sinner. Uh, when we wanted to do what's right, he received us. And God gets the honor and glory out of it. You see, Christ-like means exactly what it says. It means Christ-like. Having your head and your mouth on the same level. Doing the same thing with others that God has done with you. Now look at verse 8. He broadens it here. Look at verses 8 through 12. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision. For the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. And that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, for this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. And again he saith, rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. And again, Isaiah saith, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he shall rise up, arise to reign over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles trust. Now he broadens it. Does anybody see what he's saying? You've been around in a short time, and you know something about the Bible. Do you see the great illustration that he's making here that puts it into the context of this? First of all, he says in verse 8 that Christ was a minister of the circumcision. What does that mean? It means that his primary ministry when he came to this earth was a nation of Israel and not Gentiles. In Matthew chapter 10, when he sent the 12 out, he made specific instruction to them not to go to the Gentiles or to Samaria, half Jew, half Gentile, but only to the house of Israel. Do you know why that is? Because in the Old Testament, the Gentiles, you and me, ladies and gentlemen, we are Gentiles. You and me were a stench in the nostrils of God, and he told God's people not to have anything to do with us. They hated the Gentiles. They're called dogs in the Old Testament. <clears throat> They're called uncircumcised dogs. That's a derogatory term. There's a phrase in the Old Testament that, <clears throat> that I'm sure you've read about and wondered many times and scratched your head. It's a phrase that, uh, it's a question you hope nobody ever asked on Thursday night Bible study, but eventually somebody does. There's a phrase back there that simply says, he that pisses against the wall. Now don't make that verse your testimony verse around a campfire. That's not what you want to do. But it's in the Bible for a reason. And people look at that and they say, ooh, yeah. Well, this goes to show you that God's on on a common more level than you are sometimes. What does it mean when it says, when it's talking about somebody and it says, he that pithes against the wall? You know who does that? A dog does that. You ever had a male dog? No, I've always had dumb male dogs. They all squat like the girl and they, you know that, because we don't have any walls around our house. But they like my car tires, which I'm not happy about that either. That's a dog. That's what a dog does. And the ref, that derogatory term That nasty term is directed to the Gentiles. They hated them. When they went in and took a Gentile nation, you know what they did? You know what God told them to do? God said, you kill every man, you kill every woman, you kill every child, you kill every animal, you kill the horses, you kill the sheep, you kill everything. Somebody says, oh, what a mean old God. You don't even understand why God did that, do you? Because those Gentile nations were so wicked that everything that was touching them was so ungodly and satanic that it all had to be wiped out. And every time the nation of Israel did not follow that, they brought their sin right in and it became the downfall of the nation of Israel. It's really a picture that when you get saved, you got to get away from the world. You've got to burn your rock records. You've got to turn off the radio. You've got to get yourself squared away because every little piece you let come back in will drag you right back down. See, the devil's a lot smarter than we are. He'll take the thing that you won't give up because you think you don't have to, and he'll destroy you with it. 
They were having sex with the animals. They were involved in a religious worship. And they killed them all. Verses 9, 10, 11, and 12 tells us, but in spite of that, in spite of you and me as a Gentile on a broader scale, because of you and me as Gentiles and all the ungodliness and the filthiness we were in, every phony, fake religion on this planet, every debauchery and every sin and every cuss word and everything that we have in our world today came from the Gentiles, not the Jews. And yet it tells us in 9, 10, 11, 12, that in spite of that, God let us Gentiles in in spite of our wickedness. You know what he did? He received us. Look at the verses. Verse 9. <clears throat> As it is written, for this cause I will confess to thee, uh, to thee, uh, among, the, my name, thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. That's verse 9 is Psalms 18.49. Look at verse 10. And again rejoice ye Gentiles with his, the Jew people. That's Deuteronomy 32, 43. Look at number verse 11. Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and loud him, all ye people. That's Psalms uh, 117, verse 1. And then Isaiah eleven ten, verse 12. There shall be a root out of Jesse, that's Jesus Christ, and he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles trust. You know why that is? Because God let us in when he didn't have to let us in. Because God received us when we were unlovely and unreceivable that we'd committed every filthy thing that we had done. And God said, it's okay, come on in. But God's people get to that point and they can't do it. They just can't do it. I think one of my favorite stories in the Bible is in Acts chapter 10. And it's the story of Peter, who was a devout Jew, who was really is the, a key apostle to the nation of Israel. And when God was taking this concept from the nation of Israel and taking it to the Jew, or excuse me, from the Jew to the Gentile, I'm sorry, it took a while when people had lived now for 2,000, 3,000 years under the idea that Gentiles were filthy. And now suddenly God is going to turn the switch and they're okay. That was not an easy concept. Peter was the leader <clears throat> God was depending on him to get the message to the Jew that it's okay for the Gentiles to hear the gospel. So what does he do? He takes Peter up on a rooftop. He puts him up on that rooftop and he sees a vision. And when that vision is, the Bible says that a, a big, big sheet, like, a, like you spread out for a picnic on the ground, comes floating down. And on it is all manner of food that he's not allowed to eat. In other words... God's made a stop at Arthur Bryant's and had that thing spread out. And he's looking down there and he's seeing barbecued pork. He's seeing barbecued beef. He's seeing, he's seeing ribs. He's seeing everything out there. And he knows as an Old Testament pork abstaining Jew, that's unclean. And then he hears the voice of God say, Peter, go ahead and eat that. Peter says, I'm not going to eat that. He said, I've never been unclean in all my life. I'm not going to touch that stuff. You know what God said to him? It's a great lesson. God said to him, listen, bozo, if you're going to work with me and you're going to be what I want you to do, you better get your head and your mouth on the same level. Don't you call unclean what I have cleansed. You better take that lesson in dealing with people. Many types in the Bible, aren't there? Thousands of men. Thousands of women who live, whose lives we can all learn from. We learn from the ones who do what's right. We learn from the ones who do what's wrong. Every effect, every cause and effect, everything that man get into in sin is laid out clearly in the Bible. I showed you one of those in great detail a couple of weeks ago when we went through the life of Abraham. I also told you that in, in Romans 15:4 last week it said that the things written aforetime were written for our learning, didn't it? I showed you a couple of weeks before that, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that the Bible says that these things that happened in the Old Testament, these men and women's lives, were for our examples, our examples, and our admonition. But all of those examples in the Bible, as good as they are, they all have one flaw. And that is that in every man's life and every woman's life, even though they do the good, they're still sinners. For God to be a perfect God and the Bible to be a perfect book, 
and for God to be able to stand to the judgment seat of Christ and hold you and me accountable for what we didn't do, he could not just rest on the examples of sinners who found God and did what was right. No, 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 no. God would have to come down and be the perfect example himself. Jehovah Witnesses will never get this. If you ever talk to Jehovah Witnesses, when you talk to them on the Trinity, here's their reasoning. <clears throat> now, it doesn't make any sense that God would reinvent himself as Jesus Christ. I mean, can you imagine, you know, you reinventing yourself and, and, and it just is illogical. Well, the word illog- illogical is not ever in God's vocabulary when it comes to himself. But a whole Jehovah Witness can't see why God did what he did. God is a spirit. You don't see God. But God wanted to manifest himself the man for a number of reasons. But one of the reasons is he had to give you and me as a human being a perfect model of everything that we needed to have. David's good. Jeremiah's good. Moses is good. Abraham's good. They're all good. But they're all sinners. And for God to have a holy book, to be a holy God, he had to come down and be the primary example himself. Now, that is a great lesson for any of you boys sometime that want to get into the ministry down the line, is that when you lead, you need to understand that you need to, or you're in ministry, that you're not just like anybody else. You need to be the primary example. You can't be perfect, but you need to do it cleaner and better than anybody else around you. And if you can't, then don't get into it. It's just that simple. That's the model. That's the model. Christ was my model for everything. When I wanted to, if I want to study being a, being a missionary, and you are all missionaries. You heard me tell you last week that your job is to have a job where you've got a job so you can earn money to pay your bills, to support yourself. So what? You can go do what you want to do? Absolutely not. You can go out and do the ministry that God wants you to do. You're a missionary. So my model for missionary is him. You know what he did? He left his culture. He left the throne of glory. He left the angels. He left the Father. He came down here, and he took on the body of a man, and he identified with the culture that he was going to and thereby showing me the absolute model for ministry, identifying with the people that you're trying to reach. My model. He's my model. He's the model Christian. Do you ever notice, ever notice how every time he's faced with an issue, he has one phrase that he uses constantly. It is written. He constantly does what I try to get you to constantly do, and that is learn the Bible principles. Except in his case, he didn't have to learn them. He was them. But by being the model, it shows you that in every situation he fell himself into, he didn't try to deal with it on his own. He didn't use his grandma's homespun wisdom. He went back to the absolute book with the principles that told you how to deal with it. When the devil came to him in Matthew chapter 4, the devil tried to get him to do three things. And those three things were incredible things to study. But you know what he says every time? Every time he comes, and there's a great lesson in this, the devil comes to him the first time and tries to get him to do something. He says, it is written, quotes the book. devil comes a second time and he says, it is written, quote the book. Devil comes the third time, he says, it is written, he quotes the book. You know what the devil does? He gives up because he knows, he knows, he knows as long as you stay with the book, he has no end in your life. He gave up on the perfect model because he knew the perfect model was going to waste his day by always going back to the book. You learn Bible principles, you learn the book, then whatever you're faced with in life, you go to the book instead of your own goofiness, you won't have near the problems you got. He's my model. He's my model for obedience. I told you last week, he had no life of his own. What are you doing with one? His only, his only job down here and the only passion he had was fulfill the Father's will. He's my model of forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32, Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. That's your model. He forgave you. Why can't you forgive somebody? He's my model for being a servant. Romans 15, 3, Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7, where he made himself of no reputation, but took on a form of a servant. He's my model for the witness of the world. <clears throat> Do you ever read over there in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13? <clears throat> right in the middle of Paul telling Timothy about the ministry and laying out all the details, you know, I read it for years and years and years and scratched my head, couldn't figure it out. Why in the middle, of, uh, right at the end of Timothy, when Paul is laying it out to him in 1 Timothy chapter 6, 
Why did he bring up Pontius Pilate and Jesus Christ in a chapter that had nothing to do with that, but a chapter that had to do with him being a minister and a good Christian and a good testimony and witness? Why did he do that? You know why he did that? Because the perfect model of you and my witness to the world, the perfect model of what we ought to follow and how we witness to the world was set up by how he witnessed a Pontius Pilate before they crucified him. He's my model. He's my model. I wonder if we went to your Facebook or your website this morning, what your models would be. I wonder if we walked into your bedroom today and saw what models you follow. He's my model for giving. Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave. He gave everything. He didn't just give what was convenient. He gave everything. He didn't give out of the abundance of what he had. He gave everything that he had to God, and then it didn't matter because everything belonged to God anyhow. He's the model. He's the model. I know you can find lots of good models. He's the perfect model. He's the model for ministry. You know what he did? He did what I follow what he did. He took 12 men, and he invested his life in those 12 men for three and a half years. At the end of three and a half years, through those men hanging out with him, experiences with him, seeing him, listening to him, he taught them daily or everything that he did. He felt confident that he could go back to heaven and those 12 could carry on the work. That's what I do here. Except I got a few more than 12. But it's the model I follow because he's the perfect model. He's the model for your marriage. <laughs> Somebody said, well, I got a problem in my marriage. Well, who wouldn't with a bozo like you? Well, my wife's in submission. Why would she want to follow somebody like you? Bible says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Read that passage, find out what your job is to her, and then start doing it. Now, I know there's lots of good places you can go. Song of Solomon's a good place. There's 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 7 is a good place. <clears throat> good places to go. You want a perfect model? There it is. There it is. Then we go back to the fact that that's why no women in the New Testament ever rejected Christ. She saw in him what the lady wants to see in you. Not hard. 